1: Welcome to year two of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. From Eddie Olchek to Bob Costas, Mike North to Pat Foley, they reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dogs since 1893. Find them on the web at viennabeef.com and by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. Honor the legacy, pioneer the future. Visit them at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by Saranow Law Group, top-notch pros in reducing your rising real estate taxes. They're on the web at saranow.com. By BetUS, America's favorite sports book for a lot of reasons. Check them out at betus.com. And by the Palina Market, purveyors of the finest meats in the Chicagoland area since 1949. Visit them at palinamarket.com. This week we feature the very popular
0: radio analyst for the Chicago White Sox, Darren Jackson. When you're facing a lineup like the White Sox are going to throw at you from from Tim Anderson in the leadoff spot all the way down to, let's just say uh, batting ninth is, is Gavin Sheets or, or Andrew Vaughn, you are going through a lineup that you never really can take a breath. That is exhausting. So all that does is kind of make you feel a little more confident after a, a 90 plus win season. You're, you're not thinking going backwards, you're thinking going forwards.
1: Only one man is played on and broadcast for the Cubs and White Sox. That would be Steve Stone. But the list of those who have accomplished three out of four is, well, rather thin. There's Ron Sano and Darren Jackson, who played for both teams and now is in his 23rd year as an analyst on the White Sox broadcast. DJ, as he's best known, crafted his post-playing career with the likes of Hawk Carrollton and Ed Farmer, and now sits alongside Lem Casper in the radio booth. An affable gentleman with a vast knowledge of the game, DJ has been part of one World Series team and clearly would like to be part of another. So, Darren Jackson, tell me a story
0: I don't know. Ha <laughs> ha. Well, there's lots of stories you don't know. Some I will not share because they're (laughs) not complimentary, but, uh, yeah, you know, you mentioned the one world series. So something that you don't uh, recall is I also was on the 93 Toronto blue Jays for, uh, the first third of the season. So I have a world series ring with the blue Jays as well. That's
1: right. I forgot about that. You do. And, and where do you, where do you keep that
0: ring? Um, I actually wear it during the season, and uh, so you'll see it this year. I'm breaking it out this year a little more than I have in the past. Did the White Sox give you a ring in 2005? I have that on display at home. Yes, I do, under glass.
1: Well, you know, it'd be interesting. How many rings can a man wear?
0: (laughs) Me, (laughs) only two at a time. I'll wear my (laughs) and that World Series ring. I switch them out if I have the occasion to.
1: Let's talk about the the four partners you've had in the broadcast booth since you started here, including Andy Mazur. But I want to begin with Ed Farmer, who passed away in 2021. He was quite an engaging character. And I'm not sure, DJ, most people know a man with a vast amount of knowledge away
0: from baseball. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that uh, Ed prided himself on is his ability to teach away from the game of baseball whether it be life lessons, medical issues, educational issues, you name it. He was well-rounded in so many fields. You know, not just that, just socially, he is one of the most engaging people you can ever come across. Some people looked at him and thought he was way out there off the charts. Others realized he was one of the most humble, sincere people you can ever meet because um, Ed never wanted anything from you but he sure as heck liked to give a lot of gifts. I'll tell you that right now, he'd bring you gifts. And if you tried to return the favor, give him one. Next thing you know, you see somebody next to him standing there wearing the shirt you gave him. You're like, why is that guy wearing that shirt I gave you? He said, I didn't ask you for anything. I go, yeah, but I gave it to you. He goes, yeah, but I didn't want it. I didn't ask you for anything. So he's one of those guys that did not want to receive gifts, but he was not afraid to give them.
1: What's the nicest gift he ever gave you?
0: Friendship. Yeah, there's no question. you know, it's and it's funny because when it comes to actual gifts themselves wrapped in wrapping, I'll give you an example. There was a time where he went to uh, Rainbow Cone on the south side where he grew up, a, you know, one of his favorites in the city. Uh, my family and I were living up in the western suburbs. And next thing you know, he pulls up probably about one thirty in the afternoon and um, rolls down his window after honking the horn. May I poke my head, I go, Ed's here, everybody. For some reason, he just shows up, rolls down the window. He says, where are the kids? My kids at that time were probably about, oh, I'd say 10 and 7. And they come out. He holds a bag out filled with Rainbow Cone ice cream just melting. It had been on ice, but it's just melting. He goes, I went to Rainbow Cone and got you guys this hands it to the kids. It goes, all right, I'll see you later, and just drives away. And I'm like, (laughs) this man just drove all the way to Rainbow Cone because it hit him to do so, and then brought it all the way out here to the suburbs, and then he's heading down to the ballpark to get ready for work. That's Ed Farmer to tell you, if anything, he would do anything for you.
1: You know, I always enjoyed stopping in the booth to say hello to the both of you. And when I sat down with Farmio, baseball was the last thing on his mind. He would be talking politics, whatever. I really appreciated that.
0: Yeah, Ed was definitely well-rounded, well-versed. But, you know, the things I saw him do most for others was uh, make every moment he spent with them or had the opportunity to be around them or provide for them uh, memorable. I mean, he's one of the most memorable people you'd ever come across, whether it be a positive or a negative thing. Maybe sometimes he had to straighten people out. If he saw somebody talking rude to a a lady, a husband speaking rude to a wife, he'd walk right up and say, don't speak to her like that. And they'd look at him as if to say, what'd you just say? And he'd say, Mm -hmm. not unless you want to be wearing your ass for a hat. (laughs) And then he would just look right at him and they'd just say, "Okay, this guy must be crazy. But that's him. He was protective of everybody that he felt was being abused. So, you know, he just cared about people. Simple as that.
1: The other thing is he suffered from a kidney disease that was very troublesome and yet He was so low key about it, you almost never knew that he had it. I was actually bleeding internally with the cyst popping in my kidneys from polycystic kidneys. It's the number one genetically passed disease in the world. And my mother, she had that, and uh, she was gone at 37. And I inherited that gene, and so did three of my
0: brothers and sisters. You know, he went through his kidney transplant, and you know, he took well really good care of himself he took it. he took it seriously he took the gift that his brother tom gave him seriously he never wanted to do anything he didn't eat any red meat to, to which would endanger the kidney's survival he, he took all of his medication religiously i mean he did all the things now the one thing he did is he kind of didn't rest enough he just always was going he didn't give his body much time to recover he worked out relentlessly um you know he but the one thing he never wanted, you see his hands, his hands look like they're a bit deformed. That was actually from the medications he was taking to kind of cause his knuckles and stuff to, to, to form a little different direction. But um, you, you asked him and you saw him in the gym, there was nothing that was holding him back. So the only thing that really George, that kind of, if, if you looked at medically that he had issues with, it was just making sure that he did his regimen and, and stayed healthy as long as he could and, eventually you know the hard part is to get a little bit older to get into your 70s and and their 70 range and then all of a sudden you've had that history of of the kidney transplant and you know you're doing so much your body's going to take a a a beating and i think that's finally what caught up with him he was just so busy so active and so relentless that uh, his body just got tired
1: not sure the younger generation is aware of
0: Farmio pitched for the Sox in
1: 1980, he recorded 30 saves, and made the All-Star team. But he's going to be best known for his role as the White Sox broadcaster and some of the great calls like this one. Everybody up here at U.S. Cellular. Sox five runs, six hits. The 2-1 to Bartlett. Swing shot the short. Ramirez has it. Throws. Bartlett picks the perfect game. His second no-hitter. He now hits the Tampa Bay Rays. People going crazy here at U.S. He's
0: mobbed by his teammates. A perfecto.
1: You started your career in the TV booth with Hawk Harrelson, whose personality was endearing to some and perhaps grating to others, but he could talk baseball until he was blue in the face. Over the years, I've had a lot of critics and uh, I've had a lot of love. And and I I tell you what, uh, obviously I love the love better, but I don't mind the critics at all. What did you learn from him?
0: Uh, A ton. Um, In the booth, how to broadcast a game. Um, So many historic stories. Told me stuff about people that he played with. You know, the first time that I really started engaging Hawk in conversations was in 94 when I came to the team to play. And we'd be sitting on the team bus heading to a ballpark or away from one. And I'd go sidle up next to him and say, hey, tell me about this guy. Whether it be yes or Bob Gibson it didn't matter to me I I love the history of the game so I talked to him and and the minute you started questioning him about some of these players oh man you just see him light up because (laughs) you know I cared about the history of the game it wasn't about just our era that I was playing in it was about those guys that came before us and he really really had a knowledge of the history of the game and so many other things, whether it be golf or boxing or basketball, you, you name it. He's, he's an engaging person, no matter what. So I learned a lot from him, whether it be about former players, whether it be about how to broadcast, how to score book myself for, for the games uh, there's so many different directions, his family, I mean, became part of my family. So A lot of people always thought because of our broadcast that we were bumping heads up there. It wasn't anything like that. Hawk and I would be having breakfast the one day and playing golf another and then doing a broadcast. And we just definitely didn't always have to see eye to eye on what took place on the field. So he'd say his part. I'd say my part. And people would think, oh, these guys don't get along. And that wasn't even close to the case.
1: So you spent most of your time with Ed and with Hawk. What did you gain from them that you use today in the broadcast booth? Uh,
0: work ethic. Um, one thing about really first getting up to the broadcast booth with Hawk is put the work in, uh, be prepared. And you know, when you learn that as a first time broadcaster, I, I don't think you can ever go wrong. He, he made sure he said, get up here, do your homework, do your research read all the things you're going to have to read before the game, make sure that they don't surprise you during the game when you're standing there saying, Oh, wait a minute. What is this? I'm reading, uh, prepare for your, for your interviews, all of that. I learned from Hawk. I mean, every bit of that uh, was because Hawk was there to make sure that he told me, Hey, look, and if I needed guys, he didn't necessarily volunteer information, but if I needed information, he'd, he'd share anything with me. Whereas Farmio was the opposite. Farmio was, always volunteering information and always willing to say, what are you doing over there? Knock that off. So <laughs> it was, it was always a balance from one to the other of, uh, of getting the help and memorable. Geez, I mean, either way, I mean, I wouldn't be the broadcaster that I would, that I was today or the social guy that I am, because both of them had me out and about around others all the time.
1: When Farmio. You- Past You spent a season with Andy Mazur. How difficult was that transition? And not so much with Andy, but not having Ed alongside?
0: Well, missing Ed still, you know, is something that bothers me every day. But um, Andy was an easy transition because he'd been working with Ed and I already. Uh, he'd, he'd done some fill in games for me, for Ed, he'd done the pre and post for us. So when Andy came over to the seat, it was a natural transition. It was great. He and I already were friends. We're still friends. Um, we spend time together during the season. Uh, so, so that wasn't that difficult if it had been just cold Turkey, you know, it would have been somebody out of nowhere. I would have been, okay, let's, let's, get to know each other, let's figure out some rhythm and timings personality wise. And that wasn't the case with Andy at all. We already were kind of well-versed of who each other were. Would you
1: like to save money? (laughs) Who wouldn't? How about saving money on your real estate taxes? I have and did so thanks to Serenal Law Group, accomplished professionals, ready to put money back in your pocket. All Chicago properties were reassessed by the Cook County Assessor's Office and some of you got eye-opening increases. Serenal Law Group has the ability to lower that. The deadline to file your 2021 appeal is 30 days after your township opens for appeals at the Board of Review, so don't waste a minute contacting Sarinal Law Group so you can save. There are no fees, so you don't have to pay a dime unless they save you money. And take it from me, they've saved me thousands. And they do it in a professional and friendly manner that makes your life a whole lot easier. Saranow Law Group handles appeals throughout the greater Chicagoland area from residential, commercial, or industrial property. They're ready to fight on your behalf so you don't pay more than your fair share. Visit their website, saranow.com, that's S-A-R-A-N-O-W, or call them at 312-373-0015. Mention promo code OFFMAN, that's O-F-M-A-N, to get a discounted fee on your 2021 property tax appeal. Contact Saranow Law Group, S-A-R-A-N-O-W, and start saving play ball. Major League Baseball is underway and BetUS is your home for every game, plus the NBA and NHL playoffs and the PGA Tour. Sign up now and first-time bettors will get a 125% bonus with our promo code STORY22. That's STORY22. Future odds, live betting and great parlay plays also await you at BetUS. BetUS. You bet, you win. You get paid. Go to BetUS.com and remember our code story 22 and now you're working with lynn casper who of course made the move from the north side to the south side did you have to set him straight who to root for
0: (laughs) (laughs) i gotta be honest with you lynn casper is a brilliant man that man walked right in wearing white socks of gear going this is who I play for now, right here, the White Sox. So um, he left it. He closed that door, walked into our booth, and he was ready to be part of the team right at the gate. So that was easy. There was no need to even think about it. And, and you know what? To this day, he's not even really slipped up one iota, thinking about pulling for this for the Cubs, his former employer. He he just has been with us, and he's part of us. He's just part of the family immediately, and he's been great. Two outs, nobody on bottom first. Here's the pitch. There's a little humpback liner out toward right. That's going to drop for a base hit. Jose has a two-out single, and that'll
1: keep the inning alive for on moncada Why do I get the sense you really enjoy what you're doing, and now being able to travel again instead of being cooped up because of COVID?
0: Oh, man, George, you know, that's the that's the savior of our of our business is being able to be around the guys now on the road, uh, be in the environment that they're in, talk to them away from the field, whether it be just passing in the hallways of the uh, hotels on the road or on the team buses. Those are the things that really get us to be part of the White Sox family. If you just show up and you're up in a booth and you're talking about a bunch of guys and me as an analyst sitting there breaking down what they did right and wrong, that's not real good when you do see these guys. he's like, hey, man, what's going on? You're up there saying I did this. I'm like, well, you know, it's because you did that. Very rare misplay by a gold lover and Luis Robert. When I say misplay, because we're used to him catching everything. It wasn't routine, but when he took off, he gave a little quick glance back over his shoulder. Then he was drifting with the ball, which is unusual for him. Usually he'll just run back to a spot, reach up and make the play. And he didn't feel comfortable doing it on that one over his head. When you're down there with them every day, they know it's never personal because they know who I am personally now when I'm engaging them pregame, postgame, um, on the road, whether it be on the plane or the or the buses. So, that, I mean, honestly, it, it makes our jobs way way more easy to go ahead and approach these guys and now have real true conversations with them. And they know our best interest is not to make them look bad. That's not what we're doing. We will tell the truth. If, if you're not running hard or if you make a, a mental mistake, that's our job to go up there and say, well, and I'm ne- I've never had a player come up to me, George, and go, what the heck? You said I overthrew the cutoff, man. You know why? Because they know they overthrew the cutoff man and I'm right. So there's no argument there, but I'll never, I'll never ever make it a personal attack on a player because I'm a former player. And I never liked when broadcasters or, or writers made it personal and an opinion thing, you know, it was like, man, my opinion, this guy stinks. And although that's not my job, my job's not to say some guy stinks or I think that this guy's a sweetheart of, you know, I can comment about that if, if it's true, but, I'll never make a negative derogatory remark about these guys. If they're playing the game the right way, they're playing it the right way. If they're playing it the wrong way, they're playing it the wrong way. And I really don't think that's disputable.
1: We are taping this podcast in late March, and the White Sox, of course, are trying to make the playoffs for a third straight season. But clearly, DJ, they're going to have competition. Now for the Minnesota Twins, who made some upgrades, not the least of which was Carlos Correa. The Tigers, who I think had the best record in the American League after the All-Star break. suddenly the American league central is going to be one rough division.
0: You're right. There's improvements within the division. There's no question about that, you know, and uh, I think the lineup that we're going to throw at some of these more daunting divisional rivals is, is going to be intimidating in itself. Think about this as good as you are as a pitcher. And there's some good pitchers in our divisions. Detroit's got some good pitchers as you were just talking about. They're formidable to say the least, but, um, when you're facing a lineup like the White Sox are going to throw at you from, from Tim Anderson in the, in the leadoff spot all the way down to, let's just say, uh, batting ninth is, is Gavin Sheets or, or Andrew Vaughn. You are going through a lineup that you never really can take a breath. That is exhausting. So so even though teams are improving, the White Sox are as well. We're a really tough team. Our bullpen's going to be really strong. We're going to have some experience now with our third, fourth, and fifth guys in the rotation. So all that does is is kind of make you feel a little more confident after a a 90-plus win season. You're, You're not thinking going backwards. You're thinking going forwards.
1: Baseball just went through a protracted lockout, DJ. But now that it's over, changes are eventually on the way, such as a pitch clock. So what are your thoughts about that? possibly outlawing the shift. And dare I say, robot umpires.
0: Well, my feeling on those subjects, uh, first of all, I don't like the outlaw of the shift idea. You know why? And, and I'm going to tell you if this would have been before 1994, I'd have been, yeah, get rid of the shift because at that particular time in my career, first five years of my career, six years of my career, I was pretty much a pole hitter. So if you would to put three men on the left side of the infield, I'd have went, this is a problem. There's a high chopper. Vizquel. No, oh, thank you. Here's the stick in his pocket. Infield single by Darren Jackson. Well, I said that Darren Jackson ran pretty well, and this is a good case of him getting down the line. This ball gets way up. Dennis Martinez was going away for the play. No way for Espinosa to get over and cut it off. Vizquel tries to make the quick throw, and Darren Jackson beats it out for an infield base hit. Now, I will tell you, the reason I, I realize that you don't necessarily need to ban the shift is because I would have pushed one the second base all day long, or I would have jammed myself little flares to right field, figured out how to beat it, because otherwise I wouldn't have a job. So that's the way I look at now, uh, players today. Um, if you're a major league baseball player, which says you're a premier athlete, the best in the world at what you do, you've got to be able to figure a way to beat an opponent that's put a defense against you. I mean, you know, in, in football, if, if everybody's on the line and it's a mad rush, I think there's a quick little slant play over behind those guys for a touchdown. I think you make the adjustment, the audible at the line. So that's what baseball players have to do. When you sit there and realize, hey, look, everybody's on the line right there. Oh, gee, that side's wide open. Why don't I just figure a way to get it done? You put the work in, you get it done. And I know it can be done because when I did come to the White Sox in 94, I was taught in a 30-game period during spring training how to go from being a pull hitter to hitting the ball up the middle. I went from a 250 hitter to hitting 312 for the White Sox in 1994. So when I say this, I know it can be done because I never thought I could do it, and I did. So it tells me if you put your mind right, if you have the right teaching and ideas, you can do it.
1: Let me add something here because I think it's really simple. I, too, am against banning the shift for one reason. Why would you penalize a team for playing defense?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, I was talking to somebody and they said, well, you know, baseball's about more offense. You know, you want more runs. You want more offense. Yes, you do. But if you keep hitting singles the other way for nine straight at bats because they're putting the shift on, then you have more hits, more offense, more runs. So either way, you may not be hitting the home runs. Some of those might find a gap or a line for extra bases, but you're still beating the other team with a lot of runs because they're giving them to you. So yeah, I'm with you. And you mentioned the pitch clock. So, you know, I I don't think you necessarily need a pitch clock, but if you get one, I think it's going to be a non-issue because the big thing is this, when you have a man on second base and you're going through a bunch of signs and the pitcher's out there shaking in his head. No, no, no. Okay, I want that pitch. No, not that location. Oh, gee, the click. the, the clock is ticking right now. I got to get going. Well, right now, if you've just thrown a pitch, the pitcher is rubbing the baseball up. He's already receiving the signs from the catcher because you don't have to look in anymore. And he's standing there looking, shaking his head, going, "Okay." Steps on the rubber, throws the pitch. Pitch clock's not an issue either, so uh, I, I don't have a problem with that. So those two issues, I think, um, I think can be can be handled. Um, and, and you mentioned the third topic, which I've lost, uh, lost memory of robot umpires. No, get rid of that idea.
1: Now <laughs> forget. <that. laughs> I had a feeling you'd say that, but how do you speed up a game that a lot of people say is getting slower and slower and slower for an audience that wants faster and faster and faster?
0: Well, as we all know, technology can, can fail. So trying to Put a, a robo umpire back there and and we've heard this that where it's been tried there have been times where a pitch been right down the middle and the and the system didn't see it and everybody's standing there going how is that not a strike uh, just like when it happens with real umpires so let's just keep keep a, an umpire that's doing the best he humanly possibly can and isn't trying to mess up Uh, The chance, the benefit of the doubt, keep the rating system in place of if these guys are doing well or not and make them put the extra work in. If they're not doing well, they know they're being watched. So just make them accountable. And and if they don't do well, then they don't improve. Then guess what? Even though they have a union, you're going to lose your job.
1: Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, And socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast, at viennabeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at viennabeef.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A and just one F on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. You had two stints with the White Sox, but people may not remember that you broke in with the Cubs in 1986 after being their second-round pick in 81. There were struggles along the way, but you finally made an impact in 88.
0: Well, um, yeah. It, it, the one thing that you realize when when you're drafted out of high school, I was 17 years old, is you got to get a lot of repetitions. To <laughs> No matter how good you think you were and how good you are as a high school player, you get into professional baseball. Are you going to make it? Are you not? It doesn't matter what your draft pick is. It's just a matter of are you going to put the work in? Are you going to figure out the things that are holding you back? And and sometimes the coaching wasn't there necessarily to make you much better because, uh, you know, they're, they're sometimes thinking differently than you do as a player. And as a player, if you just follow blindly with what the coaching staff's telling you, if they say, we want you to throw sidearm to second base from center field, I'd look at them and go, well, that's not good. I, I don't think that's going to work for me. And they go, we don't really care. Throw sidearm. If I'm throwing the ball away because I've never thrown sidearm in my life, who's going to be the one in trouble? Not the coach that said it's the guy that keeps throwing the ball away because he was dumb enough to listen. So, (laughs) you know, you have to as a player, you have to disseminate what's what's going to help you along the way in the minor leagues to get you to the big leagues. And it took a lot of time for me to go, you know, this guy can help me. That guy can't. Don't listen to this guy. You have to listen to that guy. Give him credit just because you have to, even though he didn't help you. I mean, there's a lot that comes into play. In the end, it comes about making the proper adjustments. And then when you get to the big leagues, continually making the right adjustments to stay there.
1: Darren Jackson, the hitter, hitting 256. There's a drive. One run is in, another man holds up a
0: third, and it's a double for Darren Jackson. He really rifled the double down the left field line. It's never ending. It's never, ever in baseball going to be easy for a guy to get to the big leagues, be great forever, and make it look simple. Uh, you know, guys put steroids in their bodies and made them look great for long periods of time. But prior to that, you look at them, they might have been really good or mediocre. But I don't know, you know, to me, guys that were doing steroids pretty much are the only guys I saw that stayed consistently great. Other than that, it just really never happened. So there you were
1: uh, when the lights went on at Wrigley Field for the first time. And then it was lights out because the following year, you're traded to the Padres where you had some pretty good seasons. Now, a lot of people don't understand, DJ, what it is like to be traded. And it happened to you more than once. So tell me a story. I don't know about that.
0: (laughs) All right. I'll tell you a story, Uh, a couple of them actually. But uh, when I was traded from, from the Cubs to the Padres, it was actually upon request from me. I told my agent at that point, it was kind of, I saw the writing on the wall. It was useless for me to stick around at the team that had drafted me. They had more interest in other players that were doing well. You know, I, I did pretty well my rookie year and thought I'd get more playing time in 1989 because I, I showed I could play, and it was actually the opposite. They went with Jerome Walton, Dwight Smith, and and I was the odd man out, but I was just sitting there. So I said, hey, you guys might as well get rid of me. So they did they did me kind and traded me to San Diego. I got there at t- Took a couple of years before I got a chance to play there, but finally on accident, you know, I got a chance to play and then, then things turned around for me in 1991. So, but yeah, I, I, re- I requested uh, the trade and I also requested a trade when I was uh, with the Minnesota twins and I ended up with the Milwaukee Brewers. So there were multiple times that uh, when things aren't going your way in your career, guess what? You have a little bit of power and it might as well be, if you're going to be out of baseball, go out on your terms, go out, trying. And that's what I was trying to do. I was going to try it elsewhere. And if it didn't work there, give me another try somewhere else. So I just kept moving. I was not shocked, surprised, except for one time when I was traded, that was from the San Diego Padres to the Toronto Blue Jays. That one, that one shocked me. I was disappointed with that because it was the place that, I got the chance to play every day finally, and I was doing well. Um, I, I And I, I won my arbitration case, and right after I won my arbitration case, they said, trade him. That was that, so that shocked mm. me. This is something you don't know. Season ticket holder received a letter from ownership, going into the 93 season that we are not going to trade the prime players for the San Diego Padres. And on the list, it said, we're not trading Fred McGriff, Gary Sheffield, Darren Jackson, Benito Santiago. We're not trading these guys. These guys are going to be here. Well, <laughs> the next year came round, I was the first to go. I think uh, Gary Sheffield was the second, Fred McGriff the third. Yeah. They just started moving everybody. And that was that.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think you ever played in a playoff game. I know that um, you were with the White Sox in 94 when they were clearly headed for the playoffs for the second straight season. Um, You had a fine 100 plus games, and then the strike ends that for the season. And so then you and several other players bolted for Japan.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know what? You've heard a little bit of the craziness of my career to this point, uh, but getting to the white Sox was, was almost a savior because it was was a year where I figured how to add a little batting average, some power. And it was great. So I thought this is it. This is the payday. This is, this is a chance. I almost, I was going on into almost seven years in the big leagues at that time and then the strike and uh, then no baseball. And then, you know, I looked at it and I go, Are you kidding me? This is this is the worst timing ever. I'm just about to finally get that first multi-year contract, probably. And instead, we don't know what's going on with baseball. We we missed the World Series the possibility of spring training. Well, just like that, an opportunity jumped up to go to Japan and make some money that I already made when I'd won my arbitration. So I said, Well, there's no reason I'm sitting around here because apparently. You know, it's the only job right now that I can be guaranteed. So I went ahead and went to Japan because the opportunity just was there. Julio Franco, our DH at the time for the White Sox also. So we both jumped over there. Shane Mack, Kevin Mitchell. I mean, there are a lot of big league guys that spent, you know, successful big league careers that just took off because of that strike and, and potential lockout.
1: You spent your last season with the White Sox, and then there was a little time in between. At that stage, did you already know that this is what you're going to want to do in your post baseball career?
0: No, but what I did know after I left the Brewers in 98, and I actually was was getting ready to retire at that point, um, Chris Singleton. Chris Singleton was a good friend of mine, hadn't played in the big leagues. He lived down the street from me in Arizona, and we used to work out together. I'd taking him to my gym that I'd had been going to with my strength conditioning coach for years. And we used to play catch in my backyard when he was a minor leaguer. And he got, he had joined the White Sox and Chris convinced me to come and, you know, come back to the White Sox and play another year. And it it really did come down to, he's like a little brother to me. He's like, come on, you you know, you can look out for me. And, And you know what? I looked at him. I said, you know what? I love it. I have a good relationship with the White Sox. Ron Shuler, uh, you know, he brought me in in 94. He's still there. Uh, you know, we'll talk to Ron and see what's, what's going on. And they did. They invited me to spring training, non-roster. Got to make the team as the veteran outfielder guy to help the young kids, he said. I said, no problem. So that's what brought me back. But with the intention that I wanted to work for the White Sox when I was done playing baseball. That was mm. key. I wanted to finish my career with the White Sox so I can go into their organization in any capacity because Jerry Reinsdorf, the way he treated the organization and people that worked for him, the only other place I'd seen that was in Toronto with Paul Beeston. And, and I absolutely wanted to finish my career and work in the White Sox organization in under any capacity when I was done. So here I am. It wasn't about the broadcast. I had never thought about that. It just happened. Uh, I was standing at the right place at the right time for that to work out. But uh, in the end, it was just the organization where I felt was was probably the best place to go long term, long term. Once you're done playing baseball. You know, if there's a
1: common denominator with anybody who's played with the Bulls and the White Sox, it seems to be one man, Jerry Reinsdorf.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a reason for that. And, and you know, a lot of people will say he's he's loyal to a fault, but When you work for him, you spend time with him. One of the things you realize it's, it's sincere. He's, he's genuine. He's real. I've been impressed. I remember the first time I ever saw Jerry uh, personally up close and impersonal in 94. And, you know, he was a big wig in the sports world in 94. You think about all the things he'd accomplished, the power he had in sports world and baseball in particular. And I remember being out on the field one day down in Sarasota and saw Jerry walking down the the seats from up above coming down toward the field and i'm thinking okay there's jerry and i'm looking around thinking where's the security where's you know where's the people you know he's gonna have to have some people around him because there's crazies out there and no he just came wandering down and sat down i'm like he's just sitting there by himself he doesn't have anybody watching his back and i'm like wow i was impressed with that simple little thing because it tells you you know what i'm just a guy i'm just doing my thing and If people don't like it, there's not much I can do about it, but I'm not going to fear it. And um, it, it made an impression on me just that first time I ever saw it.
1: Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly one million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. You grew up in Southern California, and we do have at least one thing in common. We're both babies in the family, only it kind of ends there because I had two siblings. You had
0: five. We call that a full house. Yeah, I'm the baby of six. Um, I guess I'm kind of, in the sense, spoiled because my mom, by the time she got down to me, it was, she'd learned all the other things to do with the older kids, to not. So I was kind of spoiled in the, in the sense that... Uh, uh, she didn't demand as much from me as she did from the others. So it was pretty good.
1: Your parents split up when you were very young. I think you were two years old. So you were probably too young to understand that. But eventually, what impact did they have on you?
0: Mom, first of all, you know, taking care of six kids on her own, and, and she was uh, in food service. So she was a waitress for a lot of years. And um, that that was impressive because number one thing to her was taking care of her kids. And that was it. She was like mama bear. Anybody did anything or said anything about her kids. She was in your face quickly and ready to defend them. Um, and, you know, that the, the thing is, even though you don't grow up with your father around, he went back to Philadelphia because my mom split. And uh, he just said, that's it. I'm going back to Philly. Um, so I'm a couple of times growing up. Really, that was it. But in the end, I I, I recognize the fact that my, my father was a very good athlete. Actually, the San Francisco Giants uh, wanted to sign him to a contract before he actually had entered the Air Force. He, he didn't realize it. And he'd already signed to go to the Air Force and he didn't end up uh, going to them. He was a pitcher and he was a good basketball player. He played for like the the. Air Force intramural teams all the Mm. time travel all the bases and played. Those are the two sports, you know, that I ended up uh, excelling in when I was when I was uh, growing up. So it's kind of interesting, even though you're not around, you know, a, a parent genetically that that connection pushes you in the direction and it's not like you know my mom and everybody was saying oh your dad was a great baseball player or basketball player it just kind of happened my mom pushed me to baseball actually i didn't want to play baseball when i was seven years old she made me go play and then she made me go play when i was eight and then by nine i said there's no need to argue she's going to make me go play so i just kept playing and it worked out well so here
1: you are as a kid in southern california you're playing baseball in a very unlikely place tell me a story i don't know whether you saw stars along with fly balls
0: <laughs> yeah culver city california um, a lot of people i'm sure that a movie buffs are aware that that's the, the the home of mgm studios now mgm sony studios but um yeah you know you you had the tendency to actually see movie stars driving down the street or they were filming shows uh down the street uh, down the street from my house a little hotel was there they're filming tv shows in that hotel but the best part was as a kid climbing over the back lot fences we weren't supposed to be back there but we climb over the back lot fences and play in these shells of old world war ii looking airplanes and jeeps and you walk down uh what's what appears to be a, a brownstone street in new york just vacant there but it's just a facade it looks like it's brownstones but um you walk down these streets and you'd feel like you were in a different world so it was quite the fantasy land for kids in culver city that's for sure
1: did you ever run into some stars did you ever you know or were you one of those starstruck kids because it sounds like it'd be unavoidable not to run into somebody like that
0: i used to see a perfect example driving through culver city uh you remember the show chips john and Punch yes okay so these guys would be driving through the city on the back of a trailer on two motorcycles with no wheels with a camera in a truck bed in front of them and they'd be talking and you'd see them oh they're not driving down a freeway really talking on a freeway next to each other it's the back of a trailer being pulled through the city and making it look like they're actually in motion so <laughs> you see stuff like that i remember seeing patrick duffy from uh I can't remember the name of the show. It was Aquaman or something along those lines. But uh, Patrick Duffy was a big TV star. The the series, The Rookies, was a big thing in the 70s. They filmed that right down the street uh, in the hotel that I was talking about. So, yeah, you had the occasion to see them uh, filming and working. And then on the occasion, again, driving just in their vehicles through the city, leaving from work or, or going to work.
1: I'm going to correct myself in the fact that I said that you never played in a playoff game, but you really did. Tell me what it was like as a 14 year old to
0: play in the Babe Ruth world series. Ah, yeah, that's, you know what? It's crazy as, as much as I've, Got to remember about my big league career and all the things I accomplished. Boy, that's one of the most memorable parts of my baseball career because it was such a great group of guys. We were known as the heartbreak kids that year, having to come out of the loser's bracket a lot, all all the way up to playing in the Babe Ruth World Series in Newark, Ohio in 1978 and yeah, we, we, uh, we went through the whole thing. We lost the first game of the World Series to, uh, to Nashville. We had to go down the loser's bracket. We won, I believe, five straight games to come back or four straight games to come back to face Nashville again. Um, we beat them the first game. and we had, to, we had to beat them again, and we lost the last game of the Babers World Series with me standing at home plate being rung up called strike three. See you later. World Series is over. Wow.
1: If you could pinpoint one particular moment in your major league career that stands out, what would it be?
0: There's more than one, but I think the most rewarding moment in my career rewarding now, uh, not most memorable rewarding was coming back uh, in a white Sox uniform in 1994 and opening the season against the Toronto blue Jays, my former team the year before. And I, I'd left the Blue Jays. I got traded to the Mets. Uh, kind of, I don't know, unfortunate circumstances. I, I'd had, I wasn't feeling good when I was playing for the Blue Jays. I didn't know what the problem was. I kept trying to find out with their doctors, and they couldn't pinpoint what the issue was. So um, eventually they just ended up trading me away because I was terrible. And then when I got to New York, I tried to play, and it was, well, worse. And then finally, halfway through the year, you know, after the All-Star break, Uh, I was diagnosed with uh, hyperthyroidism. I had a thyroid problem I've been trying to play with. So the next year, because I was getting buried in Toronto, the next year being in that White Sox uniform, standing there on opening day, and I actually collected my World Series ring out there in my White Sox uniform, standing next to Roberto Alomar, who was telling me to get the heck off the field. Get out of here. (laughs) What are you doing? And I'm standing there looking at him, telling him to shut up. And... (laughs) And I was given my World Series ring wearing that White Sox uniform, and that moment right there, I just was really happy because it was showing, um, it was showing my comeback in a sense from the thyroid problem, but one that the Blue Jays never knew about till they sent me, sh- you know, shipped me out of there. They like get out of here, Jack, hit the road, and and then in that series, the third game of the series, I came off of the bench, hit a home run, stayed in the game, and hit another home run. So I was two for two in that third game against the Blue Jays with uh, two home runs, and that that was my comeback back into baseball.
1: Now that sounds pretty memorable to me. You are still relatively young, so how much longer do you want to continue your role in the Sox booth, or do you have aspirations to do something else?
0: No, no, this is it. this I mean, you know, look, I tell people I, there's two great jobs in baseball. One's being a baseball player is number one, and broadcasting is number two. So you know, I'm right where I want to be. And it's been a tremendous run. I mean, it's been, like you said, 23 years. Uh, I, I played professional baseball, minor leagues and big leagues for 19 years. So I've been doing this longer than as a baseball player. So I'll do this. I'll do this. You know, I'll just keep doing this until it's it's something that I feel it's been enough. I don't, I don't imagine somebody's going to have to drag me out of the booth dead. That's for sure. i <laughs> head is screaming. Uh, I'll go out. I'll hopefully got on my own terms. And, uh, and I'll do it as a White Sox broadcaster. And I don't know when that'll be, but um, I'm, just, I'm just happy that I've been here and Jerry's put me in this position uh, to be successful up there in the booth for all these years.
1: I asked this final question to all my guests. If not for baseball,
0: what would you have been? Um, probably a uh, carpenter. Yeah. Because um, there were times where my big brother, Kerry, who was a builder. Um, he was a contractor, that I would go home for the winter and do some work with him, do some carpentry work, frame out some rooms and things like that. So that probably would have been my second career. I enjoyed building something at the end of the day, standing back and seeing it stand in front of you and you accomplished that. So that was fun to me.
1: Well, let me tell you what a pleasure it is to have known you for as long as I have, to enjoy your work. And thank you, Darren Jackson, for telling me a story I don't know.
0: (laughs) George, pleasure's all mine. You and I have been friends for a long time, and I appreciate the time.
1: My thanks to White Sox Talk, the podcast, White Sox TV, ABC Sports, WGN TV, and WMVP Radio in Chicago for those wonderful highlights. And as always, a big thanks to TJ Rees for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his fine mixing and editing, and Nick Tochi for our great graphics, and to our generous sponsors, Serenal Law Group, top-notch pros who will save you money on your real estate taxes, Dynamic Manufacturing, Honor the Legacy, Pioneer the Future, and the Vienna Beef Company, home of the iconic Chicago hot dog since 1893 by U.S., a pioneer in the sportsbook industry for almost three decades. Tune in next week for another fascinating episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote.